Former U.S. National Rugby Team Captain. Team Captain. Head Coach and General Manager. General Manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks today. Very, very lucky and excited uh, to have international bestseller and MD of Uncommon Schools and a parent, a teacher, a coach, um, Doug Lamont. Thanks, Doug, for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm uh, really happy to be here. Yeah, Doug, so, you know, we've, again, talked about this in the past a little bit, but today is really special for me because I actually get to thank you in person a bit for just the impact your work had on me as a coach as I came up through the system. You know, certainly teach like a champion when that when that came out in the summer of 2010 really digging into that uh, was so important for me as a coach we had a, we had an excellent team I was, I was I was fortunate to work at Dartmouth which is a great group of student athletes but some of the accountability and efficiency that that came from you know building a classroom culture you know no no opt-out and a whole bunch of them uh, really helped just to drive that team forward and they won a national championship it was the first national championship which was awesome and then <laughs> Very quickly, you produced another just amazing, amazing collection in uh, Practice Perfect, and I was able to hit that really hard and dig into it, kind of winter of 2013, and lo and behold, we were, I was coaching the national men's sevens team at the time, and you know suddenly we saw performances on the field that were awesome. So very much uh, thank you uh, for making those tools available for the rest of us. It was uh, just has had a massive impact on my career as a coach, as a GM, as a parent, uh, you know, and now as an executive. So you're very generous, but I appreciate it. <laughs> We're just going to start off with a bit of wordplay. I'm just going to name a word, and you just – what's the first thing that comes to mind? Ooh, okay. Uh, COVID. Yeah, incredibly difficult teaching situations. <laughs> yes. uh, hopefully we get to dig into a bit of those today. Yeah. Culture. The first and foremost thing. A to play. Uh, deeply problematic in American soccer, at least. Hopefully we can flush that out here on rugby as well. Um, you're about to write another book. Yeah. Okay. And this one is going to be focused more on coaching. What's the what's direction? Yeah. It's called the, the Coach's Guide to Teaching. And the idea is that coaches are teachers. Uh, and uh, I wanted to take a lot of the things that I'd learned in Teach Like a Champion and Practice Perfect and, um, and think about them more directly in a coaching application because there's, it is a form of teaching, but it's also a different form of teaching. And I was lucky enough around the time that I, that I wrote Teach Like a Champion to start working with a variety of, of sports franchises and, and uh, foundations. And um, I was struck by a lot of the really challenging questions, teaching questions that people would ask. Like, how do you, how do you teach decision-making? How do you teach group decision-making? Which is like in the classroom, you try and teach children to be, or students to be individual problem solvers, but that's a different challenge from teaching 15 players to make coordinated group decisions. Um, and I was struck by how, uh, how a lot of those questions I, I wasn't quite, I wasn't able to answer yet. And so I spent a lot of time reading cognitive science and it, uh, I just found it to be this fascinating journey. Uh, and quite by accident just ended up trying, you know, first I was just trying to write, to write my thoughts. And ultimately it turned into a book, um, which is about teaching challenges of particular, you know, of, of sports generally, but I think particularly of group invasion games, which require this constant challenge of uh, coordinated shared decision making across a group of individuals. That so that's really the um, it's the killer app. Yeah, that is awesome. And when does that hit the shelves? 
hopefully by Christmas. Uh, fingers crossed. The, manus the manuscript is done, so uh, now it's just a question of my letting it go. I'm sure I'll learn a lot of things on this call, and then I'll want to have to call my editor and say I have to make some changes, and you know where that'll go. Yeah, I completely get it. So for us as the Free Jacks, we're obviously kind of nascent. We've been at this for two years, but we're yeah. trying to, you know, we're introducing a new sport to the United States in a lot of ways. It's been around for decades in this country, but really in a very niche application. Yeah. We're really bringing it to the masses. Participation is starting to increase. We've got a lot of things that we're looking to manage. There's, you know, there's knowledge transfer that has to happen internally with the team. Okay, there's, there's, there's got to be a culture of learning. How do we create that? There's got to be a front office that is doing the same thing, right? Yeah. Per package differently. But beyond that, for us to be successful, one of the reasons, the main reasons we're doing that, more opportunities for people to get exposed to this game. What we think is a great game, but we also think it's just this great equalizer. It only requires a ball. Um, the rules are the same for girls and boys. It's highly empowering. I get to make decisions with the ball in hand, and whatever decision I make, everybody else has to support that decision. Whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision, everybody has to get behind it. So we're in the middle of trying to figure out how we're going to make all these things work and all these different verticals. Um, now, you've had this experience. You've seen great cultures. You've seen, you know, and, and what does that mean? Um, really, really great coaching, teaching, and environments that have really brought um, – the idea of learning to, to be in, in embedded in everything. Best advice for us as we're kind of going at this, how do, we, how do we build that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that one of the least understood things from, you know, I sort of mentioned all the cognitive science that I ended up reading. I think one of the least understood things about decision-making is the critical role of perception in decision-making. And that especially when decisions have to be made fast, uh, you know, what, one of the most fascinating things I think that cognitive science has learned in the last 10 years is how long it takes to make a decision. And the answer is, it takes six tenths of a second to make a conscious decision, which is interesting because a lot of things in sport happen faster than that. Uh, pitched ball and major league baseball arrives at home plate in four tenths of a second. So how do you, uh, how do you make your decision about hitting and how are some people great at it? And interestingly, um, not to go too deep down the rabbit hole here, but for years people thought it was about uh, reaction time and they would train baseball players on their reaction time. And then someone had the insight to test some, you know, as it became, feasible to test players. They te someone tested Albert Pujols when he was the best hitter in the, in the major leagues. And it turned out that he was below average for the adult male population in his reaction time. And so what it turns out that great players do is they, they're reading the pitcher. They're hitting the pitcher as much as the pitch there before the pitcher releases the ball. They're looking at exactly uh, arm channel rate of rotation of hips and shoulders. And for the most part, no one's told them to look for these things and trained them to look for these things. And, uh, but they, they are unconsciously where their eyes go is the mark of their expertise. And when decisions have to happen fast, the line between the perception and the decision actually kind of blurs. And so correct decisions at, or viable decisions at speed are really a combination of perception. Right, if your eyes aren't in the right place and looking at the right things, you, won't, you know, you, your chances of making the right decision consistently are, are very low, combined with, in many cases, sort of knowledge and experience about what types of what types of answers are almost automating a set of possible responses to that. And so I just think that, like, that if I'm trying to build knowledge and understanding of the game perception and training players on where their eyes to go is, is one of the most important things. I did a, I had, I did a really fascinating uh, Zoom call with... Um, the coaching staff of Scotland rugby a couple weeks ago. And we were talking about perception and uh, we looked at some film together and they were just noticing how often uh, the decision 
forwards might make a, a poor decision because they were looking at the pack and they weren't looking far enough away to understand what the backs were doing in the moment. And so uh, one of the keys was sort of getting them to scan more, to see more so that they could be more informed in their decisions. And just to your, your first question was about COVID. I think one of the, one of the, the few, uh, very few um, silver linings around COVID is that this, I think this is something you can do via video, you know, having young players or senior players over and over sort of practicing, looking and pausing the video and saying, great. Uh, what do you think? What's about to happen here? What should, what should you do? What should you be looking at here? What will help, what will help you decide whether uh, one of the coaches was, was he said, um, one of the things we teach players is when someone's approaching you with the ball, if they have the ball in two hands, they haven't made their decision about which way they're going to, they're going to run. So play back. And if their balls in one hand, they've made the decision. So, you know, attack, be more aggressive as a defender. And so I think that that, those sorts of things I think are critical to decision-making. Um, summarizing that for, you know, our coaches on the ground as, as they're trying to learn to get more out of their players, reaction times quicker, reaction times, obviously in quotes there, it's being able to assess pitchers beforehand beforehand before those things happen and then that teaching tool may be okay we're going to stop the video before the next possible outcome maybe name all the possible outcomes so let's put in a bit of layer of creativity what could all what are all the potentials that could happen you know so yeah like let's brainstorm what are the range of possible outcomes first of all what should just like i think aggregating lots and lots of experiences around what should you be looking at and once, once players make the habit of looking at the right things, then they'll aggregate experience efficiently. And if they're not looking at the right things, then they're less likely to gain from each iteration of an experience. I love that. Absolutely love that. So you've been around the game now a little bit. Um, you've worked international. Yeah. Obviously, you, you understand soccer really well, teaching really well, coaching really well. Now you're starting to get introduced over the last few years really to rugby. So in some ways you're new to, new to this sport. What, what are your impressions so far about our sport? Uh, it's a fantastic game. Uh, I think it's a really beautiful game. If I could, ironically, one of my first thoughts after spending some time studying rugby was that if I could choose a game for my children to play based on the culture of the game, it would be rugby. It has such a, beautiful culture around it and maybe could I just I'll just tell a couple of stories if I could for that were that were just incredibly striking to me a couple of years ago I somehow miraculously and fortuitously got invited to go to New Zealand to work with some coaches from New Zealand rugby and so I didn't know a ton about about rugby so I watched a ton of a ton of matches and the first match that I watched was this really uh epic test match between the British Lions and uh and New Zealand the third test match and their sort of three game series down there, arguably like, you know, one of the most important rugby matches in the world. And it's 15, 15 at the end. You probably, I'm sure you know the story. And um, the referee blows a whistle because the player's offsides. And uh, then he watches the, he watches the video of it and he's kind of like, has to make this decision. There's like, there's two minutes left in the game or something. And so he calls the two captains over and there's, uh, so then, you know, as, as he's watching the video and making the decision, the captains are like standing next to each other and they're just like gracious and respectful towards each other in a way that it's, you know, sort of like brotherly, I would describe it as. Anyway, so then he makes a decision. He makes, I, I think what rugby purists would call is a fairly questionable decision. He says it was offsides, but it was unintentional offsides. And so um, instead of New Zealand getting a penalty kick, which would cause him to win the game, the game ends in a tie. And the captain of New Zealand is, you know, like he's um, 
obviously in, in, incredibly competitive, coming down to the end of the match, and he says, Romain, I don't think that's, I don't think that's part of the rules. And the ref says, no, here's why I made the decision. And he just sort of nods his head and he says, okay. Yeah. Which it's, it's hard to imagine a player in another sport uh, being as respectful and fiercely competitive as there, there is in rugby. And I think there's this culture of respect for the game that's just really, it's really powerful. Not, not just for referees, though, you know, there's also this beautiful uh, clip of Nigel Owens calling a player aside and saying, you know, this isn't soccer. <laughs> the player had been sort of griping about the calls and he said, this isn't soccer. I'm the referee. I make the decisions. Your job is to play, right? And I just, as a parent who sees parents on the sidelines shouting at referees and that being almost part of the culture now to like, I just think it's bad for children's development to have people think, to believe that their parents think the most important thing in the game is what the referee did. It distracts them from learning and loving the game. And, you know, you go home unhappy because you think the ref robbed you. There's this whole culture in rugby of respect for the authority of the referee respect for your teammates, which I think was also evident in that moment. And just respect for, you know, like there's this famous phrase that I know, I know, you know, on New Zealand rugby of, of sweep the sheds, you know, you, uh, you take care of, no matter how big you get in the game, you take, you know, you do your job, you take care of the, you take care of your equipment, you sweep out the training room yourself, that there's like, a, there's a real humility to the game that I think is, um, uh, it's a really, it's a really powerful, beautiful thing. And so I, I hope that, you know, I think in this country right now, rugby is a, kind of known as a college sport. Like if you pick it up, you often pick it up in college and there are certain associations with that that I won't get into. But I think as a youth sport, it really um, is the most, is the game that I know that has the most intact, consistent vision for the ethos of the game of, of any sport that I know. And I think it's, uh, yeah. it's just been really striking to me. Beautifully well said. And obviously, you know, something that keeps us all coming back to the game of rugby are the values that are lived by the game. That's right. That's better said. It's, it's you respect the ref. It's yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. You pull up your socks. Right. It's we respect the game so much. And it's this, it's a physical game, right? And you have to make decisions very quickly. And but we're all in it together. And at the end of the day, it's just sport. And you walk away and you shake hands. And, you know, depending on where you are, you may even buy each other a beer. Right. right? You have, you, watching the way that rugby players react to, the, to each other after the game is, you know, is remarkable, even during the game. I'm sure you saw this, um, you know, Bowden Barrett, who arguably is, I think, one of the best players in the world, switched teams in New Zealand. So I was, I was watching some highlights a few weeks ago, and he was like the last attempted tackler before his former team scored a try. Um, and so they're all gathering around the ball carrier and then, you know, they just sweep him up into the celebration. And like, you know, uh, uh, of course he's frustrated, but he's like laughing at it and they're laughing at him at the same time. It's just a, the, the level of, of camaraderie and decency is really, uh, it's really striking. I just don't think there's any other sport like it. So I really hope it catches on in this country. Definitely. And that's what we're really excited to share, right? Both in the participation model, but also just in the experience of you go to a rugby match festival environment. That's what it is. You're wearing an all blacks jersey. I'm wearing a Wallabies jersey, but we'll buy each other a drink. It's a lot of fun. Our kids are running around. It's just that the duality of a sport is mm -hmm. really that's, you know, and I think that's the way we love it. And it's just fun. At the end of the day, it's, you know, work really hard but make sure you have fun. And that's yeah. a part of it. Which, so you've seen kind of this whole youth development thing happen in soccer and various iterations and lessons learned. We're kind of at the beginning of that stage. Obviously there's yeah. been in this country for a while, but now it's like, okay, we're, we're throwing flames on this thing. How do we build it? You know, cause I guess my fear as we build this thing is coaches cost money. Facilities cost money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that 
we go down and we get caught up in what's happened to a lot of the traditional American sports where it's not only a travel team, but it showcases and you're spending a lot of money and time on the family kind of away from the home and away from building a better local experience. That's so true. Yeah, can really, uh, they're definitely, uh, two of my three kids are soccer players and we spent, you know, they're pretty serious soccer players and we spend a lot of time on the road in a way that, you know, I want to support their interest and I love that they love the game and want to learn to play at a serious level. But the cost is immense. You know, and I'm not, I'm not always sure that both financially and in terms of their time, that it's, uh, that it's good for them in the way that it should be. So I, I think the idea of, you know, doing it in, you know, in hot spots where it could work, where the game is more local and where, you know, so I live in Albany, New York. Uh, there are a few sort of top tier soccer teams from here, but mostly when my kids play in a serious youth league, they, their road games are in New York city and New Jersey. And that's three hours on the road. And as you point out, there's just a, there are a lot of downsides in terms that translate into access questions who can afford to be on a team that has that, those kinds of expenses every week. And, um, I'm just not sure it's good for the, you know, I often find myself asking, would it be better to play the game against slightly lesser opposition and then spend four hours running around in the backyard playing catch or to play a game against slightly better competition and spend seven hours in the car on Sunday, just in terms of the health of children. So, you know, I I think that a lot of sports sort of, I think it's important to thinking about someone who, as someone who's tried to sort of change the expectations for the quality of what school could look like in this country. I think it's important to, um, to have demonstration proof and have really high quality, even if it means you start with um, a, smaller, a smaller footprint so that what you disseminate is something that's immensely good as opposed to sort of a mediocre version. I think people often push for scale too early. Um, and I think my gut would be to try and build the model right and then grow it. I think that's in some ways that's how it started with soccer, you know, it started and then maybe lacrosse too. It started sort of more regionally and then people, then the, then the regions where, where the game was functioning uh, at a high level expanded. So that might, uh, you know, I'm no expert on this, but that, those are some thoughts. I love that. And that's an, an old CEO I used to work with would say, burn it hot, like right, right in that burn it hot. I love that. You know, I think you go back to that model of travel and, and that, you know, as we build out our youth ecosystem and you know, a lot of good things are happening in that regard, but it's almost like the Michaela Sheffrin model, you know, or what I understand about it. She, she grew up in the area that, that our kids are growing up and skiing, but her parents, you know, the understanding is purposely did not put her into high elite racing at a young age. Instead, stay on the mountain, stay on the local mountain in the morning, get your yeah. rep, have a great time and then free ski in the afternoon but the family's not in cars, you know, for a 45 second hour, you know, uh, yeah. three hours one way for a 90, 90 second race and three hours back and really impacting the family and that whole experience. And so actually you're getting more repetitions and the USA hockey went through that same exercise, I think where travel hockey and you're only touching the puck 45 seconds, you know, of, of a 16 hour endeavor. So is there ways to maximize the repetitions? And that's something we're wrestling with kind of at that, at that base level of participation. So building that ecosystem, burn it hot, stay local, find a way to get access, access to facilities, equipment, coaching, and identification opportunities. And right, we have a lot of fixed costs in those areas already. So yeah. how do we that up to provide opportunity? That's a big thing that we're putting a head wrap around right now. I, th- I think parental education is a big part of that also. I'm always struck by um, 
Interesting. You know, one of the reasons why soccer looks the way it does is because parents are ambitious for their kids and they love their kids. And so they want the best for them. And the question is, how do you define what's best? I'm always struck by how, um, you know, I think there are a series of decisions you can make as a soccer coach that are what I would describe as long run versus short run value decisions. And like, uh, you know, whether you teach kids to play for the long run or to win right now. And like, you know, win, winning is, is, is a good thing and for the most part, but you can also make decisions that are, you know, you can have a super athletic kid who can win games in the way that you, if you know the game, you know you're not going to be able to do that in five years. But there are lots of coaches who will encourage a kid to keep doing it because it causes them to win now. Who, who has the greatest incentive to not choose that coach and to choose a coach who um, builds long-term value in the kid who's you know, trying to teach them the game right so they can play it for as long as they want to? Parents do. But ironically, it's often parents who are shouting loudest for the wins, who, like, who judge the team and the program that they go to by how good they are. And so I think that one thing that's maybe starting to happen in soccer is, is helping parents to look for something other than wins when they evaluate the quality of a program. Right? Of course they shout for, you know, especially if you don't know the game of soccer well, you, know, you shout for the things that are obvious to you. And so helping, helping parents know what to look for from a developmental standpoint, I think helps to align them with clubs and coaches that make the right long-term decisions. Yeah. I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. But there's an education component that has to happen there. And that's countered by a coach who's trying to make a living and now running the right. company. He needs to be paid all year. So incentives to be a part of this program for 10 months of the year and not branch out and do other sports. And yeah. the, whole, the whole ecosystem is, I understand why it's there, but changing those incentives a bit would be, would be awesome. The judgment of not the judgment of today, which would be fantastic. Obviously, right now, it's very tough to get participants on a field. We're in a very light training environment right now. So virtual learning has become an important part of us as an organization, right? We, we're two days away from a, a sellout for our first home inaugural game. Yeah, that's great. Patty's weekend in Boston. It was going to be awesome. We suspend the season on the Wednesday, Thursday. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, soon thereafter, and obviously that's a big hit revenue-wise, and that's the challenge. So we kind of had to look internally, okay, what can we do to continue to deliver on our mission? All right, well, let's try to see if we can evolve as more of a virtual company. What does that actually look like? So we started a virtual academy, learn to play initiatives, have a roll of toilet paper. Nobody had a roll of toilet paper, but that was not our skill set, you know, virtual teaching. More importantly, virtual learning. It's not something that that wasn't that's not our craft, right? As an organization yeah. originally, and we've stumbled and learned as we as we go. What what are some lessons there that you've gathered now? You guys are hitting on the teaching side of things. Like, what can we do? How do we manage it? Yeah, those are great questions. I think the uh, I think one of the great opportunities is to go back to the idea of perception. I, you know, I think that you know rugby is a really complex game, and so most players who are going to be learning to play the game in this country who are new to it are not going to understand most of what they're looking at, either when they're playing or when they're watching it. And so one of the first things, you know, I'm always struck by how the best player on the field in soccer in this country for many years is often a kid who didn't really understand what the end product was supposed to look like. And so the best player would like touch the ball 12 times in a row. And if you look at European soccer, like Xavi, the, you know, several years ago, maybe arguably the one of the best players in the world, like he touches the ball two and three times, right? And so if you don't understand what the end product is supposed to look like, you spend your time and training doing things that are not as productive. And so I would probably be thinking about a lot of deep investment and like, let's just 
enjoy watching rugby together. But when I watch rugby, I have a thousand questions about, you know, uh, what was that? What just happened? And so just having people understand both tactically and rule-wise what's happening, why did, you know, like pausing, why did they do that? would probably help people people to become more efficient learners in the long run if they saw the end goal more clearly. And then I think just, you know, like also um, the opportunity to, uh, to really clearly define a skill video is very powerful for like, let's look at how let's, let's take a ground pass. You, you know, you're picking up, you're throwing the ball. Here's, here's what Aaron Smith looks like uh, doing it. What do you notice about the way that he throws a ball? Great. Your homework is to go take a rugby ball or the closest thing you can get to a rugby ball and try and do this. 30 times and send me a video of yourself with your best one. And then we'll study some examples and we'll critique your, your form. But um, so I think perception and then this is the tie into like, let me help you make the, your physical practice better and then review it by, by, by a video or probably, you know, the best compromises you can, you can make. That's great. And I think I remember that from practice perfect end in mind, right? So that's right. And okay, work backwards from there. You know, just so many good things like that came out of both those books that really helped me. And I probably sum them up in my brain in two ways. One is accountability, accountability yeah. the instructor and the student, you know, like the no opt out and other ways around that. Yeah. 100%. What was the 100% one? The, um, like, just the idea that everyone's with you for learning all the time, right? That it, uh, I mean, I think about this all the time. You, know, you ask a question, questions are so important in, in coaching, but if, uh, if the same three kids, highly verbal kids, shout out the answer to every question, then the rest of the 18 kids realize after a while that they don't have to answer the questions, which means they may not be thinking about the questions. And so just making sure that everyone is with you is such a, it's such a mundane thing that it's easy to overlook, but I think that that's, that's critical. I love the fact that one of your takeaways was the word accountability, because I think um, accountability is a, dir a dirty word to a lot of people. But when I think you're when you have responsibility for someone to help them accomplish the things that they want to do, accountability is a gift. You said you wanted to work on this. Like, how did you do? Let me help you make sure you accomplish it. What, these are the things we need to do to make sure you get to where you want to go. That um, I, don't, I don't perceive it as a dirty word at all. I think it, you know, when, when people have, have goals that they want to accomplish, it's, uh, it's, what the adults are <laughs> it's what the teachers are supposed to do. So I'm, I'm happy that that's the word that you took away from it. Big time. And, and then, but that's instructor and student, right? And that's, that's right. Looking at it in my world today, managing up to a board and working with our front office and all of the parts of that is, okay, w what is the objective here, the end in mind? And okay, let's work back. What is that objective? How are we going to measure that, right? What does that measurement actually look like? Do we agree? Do we agree? Do we agree? No, we don't agree. Okay, let's hash yeah. that Yes, but make sure we're, we're on the same page there. Okay, now we're accountable to that. You've made an example about pass, how to pass out a paper appropriately, how to pass out a, in a classroom or how to enter the classroom and just making models and systems that are slightly more efficient, but there's the, the additive benefit of all that over time. It's interesting because I think, I think in addition to being efficiency is a really powerful idea. People chafe at it in education because they, you know education is not supposed to be about efficiency. But I think that one of the things that happens when you have efficient systems, it's not just that you use time better, it's that ideas flow better. One of my favorite classroom videos is of this teacher who she's a fifth grade English teacher and she's, they're reading a book together and she says, they're reading it aloud and she says, tent your books, which means put your book down on the desk, open to the page that we're gonna pick up with at again in a minute. Question 87 is, how is the narrator changing why are these changes happening? Go. 
Uh, it, you uh, write, you know, write your answer in complete sentences for 50 seconds go. And three seconds after she says that, every kid is writing because she's got a system for it, right? And the, the paper is already out on their desk. It's the same paper for everyone that they've got a journal that they use every single time. Every kid has a pencil. And so, yes, they save time. But the most important thing is, that, is the continuity of ideas, that what the kids are thinking about. They're in the, what you might describe in sports as a flow state, that what they're thinking about when they're reading is now what they're thinking about when they're writing as opposed to, excuse me, Miss Bracey, I don't have a pencil. Do you have a pencil? Can I borrow a pencil? Oh, my, my piece of paper. I have to go get it from my backpack. And as soon as you do all those things, it's not just that you waste time. It's that what you were thinking about is dissipated. I just, I think in the age of technology, maybe the thing that we're thinking least about that we should be thinking about more is attention and managing attention. You know, there's so much, you know, the average person when they're working on their laptop changes applications more, more than, tw- more than uh, every two minutes. And when you change applications, you, there's this idea of attention residue, which is I check my email in the middle of doing a project and I come back to the project, but part of my mind is still on my email and I've interrupted that flow. And those states of like a focus, sustained concentration, focus, those are really critical to an athlete, right? You lose your focus for a second and it's a problem. And so I think one of the, one of the real benefits of efficiency is also just that it, it socializes athletes and people to be in states of sustained attention and concentration, which brings out their best, whether that's a business meeting. One of the things that my team is obsessed with is just like having really efficient systems for having a meeting to discuss a topic um, so that there's voice equity and everyone gets to be heard and we don't jump at the first idea and the most talkative person doesn't, you know, monopolize airtime. You know, those, those ideas around efficiency, are, I just think are, are deeply critical to the depth and quality of work that people do. It's, it's brilliant. How like your group right now, like when you guys are thinking about how you're going to write a book or, you know, just education of teachers, how are you guys sitting about getting that culture right? Like, how do you set that? How do you manage that? I think we really try to build a culture of humility that, you know, I think our presumption always has to be that um, the only thing we know for sure is that we're wrong about something. You know, we hope we're right about a lot of things, but we have to presume that we're wrong about some things and that our goal is to find them and fix them faster than our goal is not to be right the first time. It's to find the things that we were wrong about faster and fix them faster. And that requires, um, it requires comfort and trust with people. And it requires, uh, I think for leadership, the willingness to be, to be wrong. Oftentimes when we're running workshops for teachers, we deliberately, I, I mean, we run them, you know, we lead them as groups, but I think as leaders, we deliberately set out to make mistakes, or at least when we make mistakes, which always happens to highlight them instead of trying to hide them and be like, ha ha, we just got something wrong in our workshop, which I think, you know, silly us, let us go back and show you how that, how that really should have looked. And what we meant to say was, and uh, I just think it's important to come from the top that like, uh, I am under no illusions that I would be without errors. And I'm very, I'm comfortable exposing those to the room. And therefore that's kind of one, that's what I expect of other people in the room, but two, I'm comfortable with your being candid. If you think that I'm, that I'm wrong, that the cultures of real honesty are hard, are often hard to develop. And if it's about efficiency, then at the end of the day as well. So that's a really hard piece of it is making sure that everybody can have a say, but an hour of everybody's time is really expensive. Yes. I'm glad I totally, I mean, that's a really, that is a very true statement and something that people often overlook, right? Someone sends around the email and then we get to the meeting and they're like, what I said in the email was, well, like it's email or meeting. It's not both right now. You're like, I think people respond to that over time. If the culture feels like it doesn't respect their, their time, then they, they start to check out over, check out during meetings and feel like meetings are not valuable things. And that's a problem. I had a conversation with somebody the other day and they're like, I am so lazy that that's why my systems are so good. Yeah. Like, 
Great habits on the front end so that I can be lazy. <laughs> I, was like, that's amazing. <laughs> I was like, that's brilliant. I absolutely, absolutely completely love that. So but that, that idea of efficiency is just, is just really, really important. So advice on that as we start building our culture, both, you know, really right now off the field, cause we're not with the players today because they're all at home and being safe. Yeah. What are some things that we should be focusing on? I love rituals and traditions, right? I just think they're very important. The things that you do without thinking that you do them are the most important thing. So anything that you do frequently, I just think is worth re- was worth engineering and thinking what's the way that it should happen. If we're having daily check-ins between coaches and athletes, or weekly check-ins between coaches and athletes, and those are important, what should they look? You know, what should they look like, and how should they be run? And if we have weekly team meetings to talk about X, like what should you know? Anything that I do frequently, I'm most likely to do with the least attentiveness, but it's actually the thing that I should. I should engineer and map out what I want it to be like and hopefully include multiple people in thinking about what it looks like, but basically build rituals, build frequently recurring activities and events into, into rituals. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've learned most since writing the first version of Teach Like a Champion is I think at first I imagined systems and routines and procedures as being mostly about procedural things. You know, passing out papers was the classic example. But now I think it's even more profound for things like how do you have a discussion what, is it, what does it look like? How do I prepare to design the discussion so that it stays? <laughs> I love the phrase inside the box. People sort of tend to valorize discussions that are outside the box, which an outside the box comment often involves, you know, um, someone talking about something that's of interest only to them and not yeah. to the rest of the people in the room. And so how do you build a discussion that unlocks the best ideas that are still inside the box, right? We're still talking about the thing that we're, we're talking about here. Um, so I think those are some of the applying the idea of, of, of efficiency to uh, intellectual tasks. You can't fake it. Um, you, you can't fake your culture on the one day of the year that it's convenient. You really have to start installing it intentionally and building it. And taking, you know, it, it's a leap of faith, especially to have a culture that exudes joy and love for the thing that you're doing. Uh, it's a hard thing to ask, you know, I, I just, I'm watching a lot of video of teachers teaching online. And, um, one vi- a couple of videos really struck me, but this teacher, you know, he's, sitting in his living room and he's teaching to kill a mockingbird to kids. And he comes on the screen with this really beautiful, compelling, you know, like summary of yesterday's reading scout left the chewing gum in Boo Radley's tree and he ate it. What is she crazy doing? And like I had watching it, I had to remind myself that he's sitting there in his living room talking to a computer screen. There's no one in the room, but he feels like he's in the room with you, connecting with you. He's just taken this immense leap of faith of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, meet you more than halfway in showing in modeling for you the way that I want to engage with you around the culture of the thing that we're trying to do in the belief that you will, you will respond. And if you're not, if you're not willing to do that, I think it's very hard to change people's affective relationship to the, to the endeavor, to the organization. So identification, but then what about the people development? And it's so much of coaching, teaching, creating that learning environment is really at the end of the day, just about people development. It's yeah transference of energy and you're developing people and yeah. business side, we've got the rugby sports side and the whole point is to help everybody involved develop. And then you have the community, the most important piece and help them develop because of we're going to exist. Let's exist where we're hopefully helping build a better world. Right. So yeah. Yeah. people better because they got more chances to be challenged and, uh, and grow and help their community grow. Okay. So, that, that people development piece, how do we do that? Like, how- yeah. 
not embedded, right? Like if you're coaching, you're like, okay, I got to become a better coach. And that's really about the transference of knowledge. Okay. I understand that. Um, okay. You're now the accountant and you're managing the books. Okay. But what, how, how am I going to help you become a better you? I mean, I, I think maybe two stories that I would tell about that. The first one is, um, it's a really fascinating white paper by an organization called TNTP that studies public schools. And they did this deep, deep study on professional development. And they looked, they studied a network of charter schools and three school districts deeply for several years. And what they found was that um, the average school district spent a third of a teacher's annual salary per year on professional development. And one out of 10 teachers got better as a result. And so if you're thinking about that rationally, you'd be much, <laughs> you'd be much smarter just to spend your money, put the, you know, in teachers' pockets and pay, pay teachers better and choose better teachers. But there's this, this organization, there's one organization in the group that actually eight out of 10 teachers improved in the course of the study. And what they found was that the content of the workshops and the PD activities was not that different. What was different was the culture around it. And then the organizations that were less successful, people showed up with their arms crossed saying like, okay, how, how, how can we get through, you know, how long can I get through this? PD was something that was like done to you. And in this organization that was really successful, people left was what they did afterwards that mattered. They would leave and they would, the expectation was that, oh, I'm going to try and use this and then I'm going to talk to my peers about it and they're going to ask me about it. And someone's going to show up and say, wow, you did such a great job doing the thing that we talked about in the session. And then they would send an email to the staff saying, wow, Alex did a really tremendous job of uh, building new systems for efficiency in his classroom. It was so spectacular and I just want to shout him out for it. And so I think a lot of it is um, building a culture where we socialize people to to take the risk of trying it. Like when people say to me, I don't think I like that idea that you talked about in professional development. I always say, well, you might be right, right? Like it's your classroom. But the one thing I would ask for you is that you try it first. Try it in good faith and then tell me that it won't work before you tell me that it won't work before you've tried it. So I want to build like, this is where sort of accountability comes in. I want to build cultures where I follow up on and track and take seriously what happens after the training as, a, as importantly as what happens in the training, because the training is ready to the teaching, but the learning happens afterwards when it's on the ground, which I, th I just think that's, that's a really critical piece that over, people overlook, right? They think that John Wooden always said, teaching is knowing the difference between, you know, I taught it and they learned it, right? We always teach it with adults, but we don't focus as much on whether people use it and learn it. And so I think that that culture is critical. And one of the things that has to happen for that to happen is that professional development cannot be a pejorative meaning that it can't be only something that happens to you when you're struggling or only something that happens to you in your first three years of your career, that people who love to get better when the organization doesn't invest in them and make them better and get good at making them better and take that seriously, they get bored and they go do other things. And so it's really important when we do a workshop on how we talk to young people about their, that, like the best coach in the building is there too, alongside the young people to say like, this is, this is what we do. This is what you'll do for the rest of your career as opposed to this is what you'll do until you achieve competency and then, then the organization will ignore you. Um, and the, I guess the other like, quick story that I'll tell is I, I did a workshop for a major league baseball franchise and I asked them at the beginning, what are the challenges? It was about fee giving feedback and I said, what are your, the challenges of feedback? And the coaches all said, well, the players don't want to take our feedback. They don't want to use it. And I, I said, what do you mean? Like, these are the guys who are going to get you to the big leagues. Why did, and they said, well, they don't, you know, to like change your swing in baseball, you know that you're going to go from hitting. Someone tells you you've got a loopy swing and you have to shorten your swing to hit a big league fastball. You might be fine in double A, but if you want to make it, you've got to, got to shorten your swing. 
the one thing you know is for the next six weeks, you're going to hit 220 instead of 260. And you really, really have to trust someone to walk through the valley of, you know, 40 points lower on your batting average. And what they realized was that the players were suspicious. They weren't sure that the guys knew what they were talking about. They weren't sure that they weren't just trying to further their own careers. They hadn't invested enough in building a culture of, of trust where the guys understood the vision for how coaches worked and what coaches were trying to do and why they were trying to do it and what it took from them to be learners. And so they just were like, their sense as coaches was that half the time they were just trying to like nod and shake their heads and say, okay, okay, okay. And then deliberately ignore the feedback afterwards. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. I, and I think that is, you know, as we're looking at this, it's okay. So celebrating, if I understand this right, celebrating, right. Celebrating and making sure that the incentives are in place for people to, be in a position where they can get better and we're overall going to be able to perform better towards our mission, whatever measurable that is, right? Not just maybe making the world a better place. Great. Actually giving me opportunity to do that and then celebrating when I do, but then keeping me accountable to the future me, right? Is I think that's the, the, the big piece there is I go do PD. That's great. I may love it personally, but I'm accountable to all these other things that I have to take care of. But you're then making that part safe, the short-term part safe, but also making sure I'm accountable in the long-term because the organization is going to be better because I did that PT. My future self makes the organization better. So I think it's a lot like coaching, right? Where like it's easy to focus on short-term development, but really like when people develop the greatest degree of trust, it's when they understand that we're out to make as one of the principles that I work with says, I'm not out to get you, I'm out to get you better. <laughs> like that has to be the message of every interaction, which is I want to see you be the best version of yourself that you, can, that you can be. Nobody wants to work really hard and go home at the end of the day and feel like they failed, they lost, they failed. They didn't, you know, that, I think it's one of the hardest parts of the job of teaching, which is it's so unforgiving and grueling and you teach a bad lesson and you go home and you're like, why did I ever do this job? Helping people to be successful is I think People, people often assume in teaching that, you, that someone has to trust you before you can teach them. There are all sorts of aphorisms about this out there. They're like, they don't care what you say until they know that you care. But to me, the only way you can show someone that you care is by, make, is by developing them and helping them to become the person that they want to be. And that, in fact, they know that it may be true that they don't care what you say until they know that you care. But the way that they know that you care is by your teaching them effectively. Yeah. Like developing them effectively and seeing the difference. You know, the old saying, oh, you got to go find your passion. You got to go find your passion. My experience, again, this is very myopic, is you know, actually you do things and then the passion comes, right? It's just kind of the same. Right? Trust is sometimes inherent, but really, okay, well, I'm going to help you do this by doing it and then the trust will develop. I think that's really insightful. I've never heard someone say that, but I think it's spot on, which is you become passionate about things where you feel like you're not just that you're good at them, but you see a trajectory of like, this is fascinating to me. And, um, and I want, I want to learn about it and I can learn about it. And, uh, and that that's value. you know, it's a combination of confidence and, fa- and fascination. You don't always know that going in, you know, you think, you know, what you want to study in college and you take a course that blows your mind and you tr- tr- it turns out that that's actually the thing that, you know, Tell my tell my my own children don't choose your major until you absolutely have to, because <laughs> you never know what's gonna you know what's gonna what's gonna turn out to be your passion. Yeah, so I'm on the last generation of Gen X. You know, grew up in the '80s, '90s. Every grad speech was like, you know, go find your passion, find your passion, and it like ruined a generation. <laughs> like, it was like, oh no, 
my passion. What's wrong with me? I don't have a passion. Yeah, and then you end up seeking it by, you know, like, I don't know, the, the perfect ski run at, you know, at dawn. And, you know, like, like, in some ways, you find your passion by losing yourself in something bigger than yourself. Uh, and it's almost like a, an abject humility that gets you to your, your passion. Well, very well said. That's brilliant. When, when, when is the book coming? I really appreciate what you said about Teach Like a Champion, by the way, because the original version's been out for like 10 years now. My, every time I look over at my wife, she's still fighting her way through chapter one and has fallen asleep on the, you know. <laughs> so the, the coaching book comes out uh, hopefully just before, uh, just before the new year. It's called The Coach's Guide to Teaching. Um, and I hope I got some of it right. Yeah, I'm sure it's, it's like the lesson. What I loved about the last two books was that there was actual tools. They were craft. It wasn't just theoretical. It was things that I could apply and try to apply and work to apply now. And then I could see the results of that application. And that was infinitely helpful where you go to coaching courses and everything else. And it was, it was a lot bigger picture, but I didn't need bigger picture. Right. Yeah. Was actually like okay, focus on the twenty, mo- you know, twenty percent of the most efficient thing, you know, the the eighty twenty rule. And yeah. Some of the nuggets that you've dropped over the years that are just fantastic. So, um, really, really cool. last section is rapid fire. I'll ask you a question. Just All right, let's see if I can do better than my last rapid fire because I kind of feel like I let you down. So it's <laughs> gonna be good. Uh, teaching or writing? Do you have any other questions? <laughs> uh, they're so similar to me. I love, uh, I find them both really hard in them. Um, I, someone said to me about writing, I hate writing. I love having written. I think yeah. that's how I feel about writing. And sometimes even like I loved, I love teaching, but they're, they're both very intense in the moment for me. I, I, I actually see them very similarly, very craft-based. Yeah. I can't answer the question. <laughs> it's like when you go to your students, it's like, there's no right answer, but there is. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's fine. It's very, yeah, very true. Uh, if you had to pick one team in one sport in the rest of your life to be involved with, what would it be? Who would it be? Well, it's early for me to say the, the Free Jacks, obviously, though. Though I'm not ruling. I'm not. <laughs> um, well, I guess uh, one of the U.S. national teams, either soccer or rugby or something like that, because I, uh, I love the country and I love to see the game grow here. So That's brilliant. Love that. Um, Number one lesson for coaches and even sports executive to, to learn, to practice. You're learning most when you're making mistakes. If you, uh, if you can think about it in a non-defensive way. As long as we learn from the mistakes, I suppose. right? Yeah. And even like, I would say one of the things I've learned most from my colleagues is you can't laugh at every mistake, but if you can make yourself laugh, you know, especially the ones that are like a little bit humiliating or like, yeah. laughter and humility go together and they're, they're a powerful combination. I love that. But also, you know, I mean, fail fast has been you know, such a cliche and everybody fail and fail as quickly as you can and failure is good. You wake up in the morning to try to fail, right? And I think that's, right? we don't teach our kids and that's not, like it's just this juxtaposition that's really, really hard to manage. We're talking about this internally with a couple mistakes are going to happen and we're going to make them every day. So let's make them and let's celebrate when we learn from them and move on. But then let's really celebrate our successes. I think we lose that a lot. I lost that a bit. Very easy to be like walking off the field. Well, we didn't do this, this, and this well. Actually, so that's what we're going to celebrate. And can I? I think that's. I think you just hit on one of the most important things for me, which is I think people misunderstand positive reinforcement. Also, that 
people get things right all the time and fail to replicate them because no one says that was it. And so like, even in a coaching standpoint, I could say, you know, uh, you need to do the, you need to get your elbows out when you're tackled so you can offload when someone fails to do it. But if I can pause practice and say, yes, that's it. You did it right there. Like try it again, just like that next time that um, people perceive positive feedback as as being primarily a motivational tool, but it's also a very technical tool to help players know what to replicate and what to attend to uh, and what to keep doing, which is just as important as fixing things that aren't working. Yeah, it's like a clicking system. And if you just click every time there was a positive thing, if you adjust, you adjust, that immediate feedback will be. Um, if you're running the free jacks today, what do you focus on? Um, the true answer is I don't know enough to say. <laughs> I focus on my own lack of lack of enough knowledge to be able to answer the question, and I try and learn as much as fast as I can so I can start having some conjectures about it. Yeah. I just really believe in starting from a position of, uh, you know, I think about this every time I give feedback to a coach, which is um, the only thing I know for sure is that some of what I say is going to be wrong. And uh, he, <laughs> the person you're giving feedback to knows this is much or more about what you're giving them feedback on as, uh, as you do. And so I just think it's always important to start from there. I love that. And maybe that's the name of the podcast. I'm wrong. <laughs> right. It would be really good to have you come out once we can be in a safe environment and have you meet our staff. And it's so good to connect and reconnect. It's it's awesome. So really I would love to. It'd be it'd be great. And I, I I don't know if I told this my my son since he's gone to college. He he um was going to play soccer in college and a kind of bunch of things changed and he picked up rugby and now kind of what we were saying about like he just fell in love with learning the game. And uh, he decided to stick with rugby. So I might drag him along to watch you guys practice because he'd be, be awesome. Anytime. Yeah, anytime. I mean, Albany's not far away. And it's part of – actually, Albany's considered part of the New England region and rugby from a, an administrative union perspective historically. Yeah. And up there, and that's awesome. So, yeah. We, love that. we will keep following the Free Jacks then. I was really, it's really – it's great to see the league, league start up. And I was, I was following a little bit of the early results and – yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, you don't get this opportunity very often to kind of start from the ground on multiple pillars, right? As a sport, how do we evolve, take the great things of our sport and share them with a bigger community? Those who already participate, how do we make that even better? And, uh, it's really fun to be a part of it. There's so much to share with rugby, too. I, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be great, and I uh, can't wait to see it grow. Thanks so much. Thank you. Next week, I welcome my close friend and special guest, former Tennessee Titan, Atlanta Falcon, NFL wide receiver, Harry Douglas IV to the show. We talk about locker room mentorship and leadership, transitioning from life in pro sports to a career in media. Can you believe Harry is also a great chef? You just can't miss this conversation. Tune in next week to Full Contact CEO.